Today we continue with the sermon series, The Story, with today's title, Women. But before we get to that, we have what we've been doing um, throughout this sermon series, and that's a little interview with somebody from our church community, asking 10 questions to get an insight into some of the stories that make up our collective story here at the University Church. And today we have with us a real peach, a real peach of a human being, peach of a man, who is with us to share some of his story through the questions that I have here, and maybe a couple more, we'll see. But hey, uh, let's start here. Matthew is a freshman theology major here on campus, and uh, let's see how it goes. So, Matthew, what sound or noise do you love? I really like the sound of voices in harmony. So a large choir or like a quartet, oh, just the voices together just sounds so wonderful. And does that include your own voice, or was that usually other people that uh, are in harmony? Other people. Definitely. Okay, other people, definitely. right. Fair <laughs> enough. Hey, what sound or noise do you hate? Well, I don't know if everybody will quite understand this noise, but I know there's quite a few people who will. Uh, well, when you're playing a stringed instrument, there's rosin on the violin, on the, well, on the bow, and sometimes it gets on the strings. And when you go to clean it off, uh, just the squeaking noise it makes, yeah, <laughs> it just hurts to think about. That would be a, a fun ringtone or something. Uh, when friends visit from out of town, where do you take them to eat and why? Well, if I'm just going to go get like ice cream or for dessert, I would go, go to Iceberg to get a milkshake. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I'm just wanting to go to like a quick lunch, probably Worm Ranch for a burrito. Okay. Yeah. What kind of burrito do you normally get? Oh, I get a, veg a veggie burrito. Veggie burrito, yeah. okay. Solid. Orchata as well. With orchata, all right. Uh, if you inherited a large sum of money, what would be your first purchase? Well, I guess since I'm in church, I should probably tithe first. Okay, yeah, yeah. And, and then right. afterwards, I would, I would take my family and friends on, on a trip just around the world. Okay. Would you like to point out which friends? Because they might be interested in knowing. Um, just, okay, maybe we'll move. All right. Uh, what quality do you appreciate most in people? I'd have to say forgiveness, because that's definitely one of the hardest, hardest qualities to have. I know definitely for me, just forgiving people no matter what. If you were a person in Scripture, who would you be? Well, I mean, I would have to probably say Matthew. Uh, <laughs> I was talking to a friend about this, trying to figure out what I should, what I should say, and she said that I should choose Matthew because uh, he's one of the longest Gospels, and I like to talk a lot, so that's fitting too, apparently. <laughs> like to talk a lot, theology major. We should ask you, how does it feel up here? Look around. Does it feel like home, or I mean... Uh, who is your least favorite person in Scripture other than the devil? Well, there's quite a few people that I come across in Scripture that I'm not a fan of. Mm. But I was reminded of one the other day when I was reading in Judges chapter 19 about uh, a Levite and his concubine. And uh, he sends her out to the people who are wanting to take him. So, yeah, I'm, not a great story. Not a great story. Not a good children's story. What energizes you? <laughs> Well, I'm an extrovert, so uh, being around people really energizes me. Just when there's like a large group of people and I see somebody that I, I know and I want to go say hi to them or see somebody new or meet them, it's lots of energy. Mm -hmm. Awesome. What makes you cry? Well, there's been a few times in my life where I've really cried a lot, um, and that's, that's been the death of, of close friends and family members. Mm -hmm. And I know that the community around here that knows a lot about that recently especially. So. Mm -hmm. 
um, what are you looking forward to most hearing God say when you get to heaven? Welcome home. Thank you, Matthew. I'll have to admit I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with Matthew Cosart. You see, nearly five years ago, I sold the Cosart family a car, and I participated in full disclosure, but I thought the vehicle was about at the end of its life. And it's almost five years later, and every time I see Matthew driving that car around campus, I feel like I didn't sell it for enough money, basically. And I... <laughs> Um, and if there's an attorney in the room, I don't know if there's a way to renegotiate that contract at this point, but um, that's the hate part, mainly, mainly a, lot of, a lot of love and appreciation. So today I want to talk to you about life, life. The Gospels say on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They come to the garden in darkness. They come expecting uh, the usual because everyone knows what happens when someone dies. They come to the garden expecting the usual because everyone knew antiquity is littered with false messiahs and failed political revolutionaries. They knew what to expect. They come to a garden which contains a tomb, which contains a dead body. Or so they thought. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And light defeats the darkness. Something unexpected. This garden becomes a bit of a maternity ward. The empty tomb and empty womb. And Jesus, if you will, reborn to life. Everything changes. All has been made new. These women, the first of hundreds and then more, witnesses to a resurrected Jesus. John Mark, the first of the credible historians, now 2,000 years of them testifying to the legitimacy of this story. The Apostle Paul, the first of the great theologians, 2,000 years of them now, explaining the great theological power of the story. Jesus, born, lived, died, rested, raised, and ascended to the throne of God, salvation accomplished, and all of this a prediction of the future, that we who were born, that we who live and die and rest might be raised again and ascend to join Jesus at the right hand of the Father. This is the Christian message. We live between two resurrections. 
a resurrection of history, that of Jesus himself, and, as a, resur and a resurrection promised in the future that we look forward to one day. How might we visualize this belief, this way of living? My brothers and I grew up playing in a big backyard. And on the one side of that yard was a majestic forest of pine trees. And on the other side of that backyard, a second forest of majestic pine trees. You see, we grew up between these two. Sheltered by these fixed points, we played football and baseball and made up games with the dog and jumped our bicycles and built forts. Oh, we played and lived in that glorious backyard, guarded by two majestic forests of pine trees. And this is the picture, isn't it? We live between these two most powerful of all truths. The resurrection story of Jesus behind us. The resurrection story of us all by the power of Jesus in front of us. And so we play in between these two a resurrected life. Jesus explains succinctly what this is all about in John 10 and verse 10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Not merely a description of what will happen to us one day, but the present reality. The King James says an abundant life. The New Living Translation, a rich and satisfying life. The message, a real and eternal life. A more and better life than you have ever dreamed. Or perhaps this, a life dressed to the nines in beauty, truth, and goodness this life. We live the resurrection, nestled between the two great resurrections that we rely upon. But it is not so simple, it is not easy to live this resurrection life. Because evil has not been fully destroyed, the devil has not been put to rest forever, and so it is a challenge. How are we to negotiate it? Uh, just for a few moments this morning, I'd like to consider a poem by the Kentucky farmer Wendell Berry, a tennis lesson from the world's number one player, Novak Djokovic, and finally, a piece of music from the French composer, Leo Delibes. First, the poem. You see, living the resurrection life means that we will find ourselves at odds with the broken world that we live in. To follow Jesus means that we will be subversive, we will be revolutionaries, we will be counter to the prevailing culture. Barry writes this in his wonderfully titled poem, Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Don't you love that? He first describes the problem, the pressures from our world, love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay, want more of everything ready-made, be afraid to know your neighbors and to die, and you will have a window in your head 
Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. A life controlled by external forces. The remedy for Christians. So, friends, he says, every day, do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. That is, invest in things even larger than this world. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, and you will not live to harvest. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful even though you have considered all the facts. That is all the difficulty in the world. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, Barry says, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail the way you didn't go. And then this wonderful metaphor to conclude. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary some in the wrong direction. And then he concludes with these two words, practice resurrection. You see, I think Barry gets it right. <laughs> to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of this resurrected Lord means that Christians will run counter to the controlling cultures around us. I think we will run around a little bit like the dog that we had for many years, a little Pomeranian that looked a bit like a fox. And sometimes that dog would get off the leash, off the chain, and would be running in the backyard and would get a look that my wife would term that wild look. And that little dog would look up at you with wide eyes and a smile on the face, staring you right in the eyeballs with the look that says, you can't catch me. And that little fluff ball would turn right and left and speed up and slow down, and you couldn't catch her. And then she would stop for a moment to look at you defiantly again. I am free. I am no longer on that chain. And this is what Barry is trying to tell us. Those who follow Jesus those who practice a resurrection life. We are to be free of the chains that the world lays out for us. And there's many that would wish to put us in chains. The tyranny of unfettered liberalism. The tyranny of out-of-control fundamentalism. Communism, capitalism, materialism. Oh, there's all kinds of philosophies backed up by power and even violence that would say to us, there's your collar, here's the chain, do exactly, think exactly, live exactly like we tell you to. 
Barry says, oh no, to follow Jesus, practice resurrection like a fox, is to live free, to live free. I love the words of A.W. Tozer, perhaps a challenge to this, our Walla Walla University Church and academic community. He says, thank God for everything up to this point, but do not stop here. Press on into the deep things of God. Insist upon tasting the profounder mysteries of redemption. Keep your feet on the ground, but let your heart soar as high as it will. Refuse to be average or to surrender to the chill of your spiritual environment, and you will see visions from God. Be free. Follow God boldly. But all of this is not merely pie in the sky, some grand philosophical commitment that we make, but rather it is practical. The British literary figure Susan Ertz remarks that millions upon millions long to live for eternity. People who don't know what to do with themselves on a single rainy Sunday afternoon. It's not just belief and hope that let's live forever. Forever is lived one day at a time beginning now. So how is it that we live as resurrection people on one afternoon, on one rainy day? Perhaps then, Novak Djokovic, the number one tennis player in the world, could give us a lesson. On a rainy Sunday afternoon at the French Open, a rain delay, he decides to put a memory in an unsuspecting ball boy that I'll guarantee you that kid will never forget. He decides to seize the moment and change the whole environment on that day, on that afternoon, for the gathered masses. Let's take the lesson and then learn. That's a man who knows what to do on a single, solitary, rainy Sunday afternoon. A resurrection moment. 
I was driving with a member of this congregation. We went through the drive-through of a fast food restaurant, and this person in the driver's seat did what is habitual, tipped the person that works at the fast food restaurant. I didn't even know that this was legal. Can you do this sort of thing? You should have seen the look on that young man's face. Resurrection. Last Sunday, because of the generosity of a member of this church, we were able to give away 150 milkshakes to students of this campus on the eve of Easter, celebrating Jesus, celebrating community. And I looked all around at those happy faces and I thought, a resurrection moment. A few days ago, I met with about 30 members of the Adventist Health community over lunch to talk and to pray together. Stories of compassion and laughter. I walked out of the re that room and thought, resurrection people, a resurrection moment. This week I sat on the Sunbridge board, that organization that seeks to serve and care for the poorest in our community. And whenever I gather with that group and feel the hearts, hear the words, the commitments of people there to care for those in need, I walked out this week and said, ah, a resurrection moment. This week I've been doing the week of prayer for all the third and fourth grade classes at Rogers Avenue School. Let me sum up the week. Laughter. I love Anne Lamott's little phrase, laughter, she says, is carbonated holiness. Let me tell you, there's a load of carbonated holiness at Rogers Adventist School. Each Wednesday, the leaders on this college campus meet for the meeting. The meeting that begins for an hour with tears and laughter and stories and praying about the people of this community. And I leave and I think, resurrection moment. I've taught about 180 students on this campus in successive quarters this year, and I go home and I tell my wife, the future of this church is so bright. Man, resurrection moment. This congregation and community has grieved. We have brought comfort and hope as we have endured a difficult season, and I think about us, resurrection moment. And even just this past last Sabbath, as nearly 400 of us pledged money to Sunbridge, over $21,000 committed, and I thought, wow, a resurrection moment. This community that we are a part of, I suspect, knows what to do on an average rainy Sunday afternoon. Resurrection people. Living between those two great resurrections of history and the future. Oh, we know what to do in the present moment. Oh, we will not be told what to do. We are free. And we will live out every day this way. And why is this important? Why these acts of beauty and of music? I read recently that Apple's Steve Jobs, dying of pancreatic cancer, was paid a visit by the great cellist Yo-Yo Ma, who took out that great Stradivarius and played the melodies of Bach. 
And Job said, this is the greatest evidence for the existence of God because this must be beyond a merely human contribution. You see it? Everyday acts of resurrection lead to the possibility of God, a God who died and was raised, a God who will raise us one day. Resurrection. Uh, but a final question this morning. Those women, those witnesses at the tomb, do you suspect they ever went back to that garden? I mean, a few days later, maybe the next week and the week after that, do you think they went back and just stared at that tomb? I think they did. I think they walked back to that space because they just had to relive the glory of darkness being defeated by light, of the history of the world being changed forever. I think those women went back. And what did they do? I suspect they sung. They made music. In a previous generation, the French composer Leo Delib wrote a piece of music, a duet, an aria for two women. The setting is a garden, and the women sing of light and water and birds, but mostly flowers. They just sing. Chelsea and Lindsay and Dr. Scott are going to invite us into six or seven minutes of quiet, joyful meditation on the glory of women at the garden and the great resurrection of Jesus. I invite you to receive this gift. Oh, 